Hello, neighbor. You are listening to the New Garden Church podcast. We're glad you're here. This year, we are walking through the whole Bible together as a church family day by day and week by week. We're meeting online right now, but we normally meet at 10 a.m. at DuPont Tyler Middle School in Hermitage, Tennessee. You can catch our weekly gatherings live by checking out our website at www.newgarden.church online. We would love to hear from you. This week, Jeff provided a message based on several laws that we read in the Old Testament and what it means to be set apart. We hope that you enjoy what you hear today and check back in with us again soon. Good morning. Welcome to week seven of Long Story Short. Now, seven is such an important number in scripture. It often symbolizes perfection or completion but we're not quite done reading the Bible yet, but it does mean we are 13.46153846% finished. So close, yet so far. And we passed a significant milestone this week. We finished the book of Leviticus. Now, if we were all together, uh, I would have everybody uh, who's keeping up with the reading stand up. We would give a round of applause and we would give you a sticker uh, because that's one of the most difficult books in the Bible. And as great as an accomplishment as it is, remember, the goal this year is not necessarily to read through the whole Bible. That's great if we do that. But the goal is is to open the Word of God every day. We're interested in starting this daily habit, this practice that will start to transform us into the kind of people God wants us to be. But some of us are actually reading through the whole Bible, and you have kept up. Now, if you are staying uh, up to date with the long story short reading plan, you just entered another very difficult book. And that book is Numbers. It's got a whole lot of numbers. But just let me give you a reminder of what God has done. He promised Abraham and his descendants that they would become a great nation. And now the numbers back it up. So we have a hard time reading through all these names. But imagine you were there hearing the names of your grandparents who crossed the sea and and how God has been faithful to your family. But even in that context, it's a difficult book. But I believe in you. You can do it. So last week, we talked about the Ten Commandments, or the Ten Words, specifically the first couple, worship Yahweh alone and carry His name well. And while the specific laws were given to a specific people at a specific time, the principles of those laws still apply to God's people today. We worship Yahweh alone, and we bear His name in how we choose to live. Now, that's a pretty manageable idea to grasp, but it goes beyond rules to follow. The rest of Exodus is a very detailed plan on building a tabernacle, this meeting place where God's presence can dwell among His people, And then in the final words of Exodus, you find the glory of Yahweh fill the tabernacle. Like God is near his people, but his people still cannot come near to him. We see this in the first sentence of Leviticus. Yahweh called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Yahweh is in the tent of meeting, speaking to Moses, who is outside the tent of meeting, which is kind of a contrast to the whole idea of a tent of meeting. But the next book of Numbers opens with this first verse. Yahweh spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting. 
Do you see the difference? <laughs> like now Moses is in the tent of meeting, meeting with Yahweh. So what has happened between these two verses? Well, the book of Leviticus has happened, which for those of us who read through the whole book, it went something like this. All these weird laws about offerings and sacrifices, and then there are these laws about offerings and sacrifices, and then there are these laws about offerings and sacrifices. And then you start checking the page numbers like, didn't I just read this? Then it gets into skin diseases and mold and you're hoping you don't have to read this again and again. Like it's a difficult book to get through because we are so removed from the original audience, both by time and by culture. Like you make a house ceremonially, ceremonially clean uh, from mold by taking two birds, you kill one, you dip the live bird in the blood of the other bird, and then you sprinkle the dead bird blood on the house. And you think, well, it seems to fix your mold problem, but what about the bird blood problem you have now? Like this is so strange. And it is to us, but it meant something to them. And we have a hard time understanding. So as we think back about the book of Leviticus, I want us to walk away with two main ideas, atonement and holiness. These are the key ideas that make the difference between hearing Yahweh from the tent and speaking to Yahweh in the tent. Having God's presence near is good, but it's also dangerous. God's presence is a lot like the sun. It's powerful and good. It brings light and life, but if you get too close or you're exposed without protection, like it will burn you or it will destroy you. So at the tabernacle, when something mortal and corruptible gets close to such pure power, it's destroyed. And so the word holiness is used in Leviticus to describe God's pure and powerful presence, which like the sun is both good and dangerous. So the point of Leviticus is to show how corrupt Israelites can live near God's goodness without being destroyed. And it goes about it in three main ways, rituals, the priesthood, and purity laws. Like the easiest way to connect these practices to our lives today is to picture the main trash can in your house. Now we probably all have a few trash cans, like in the bathroom or in the bedroom, maybe you've got a home office, but I'd say most people's main trash can is in the kitchen. Now you may just have it sitting in the corner with like a fancy lid, but most people try to keep it out of sight in the pantry, uh, it's under the sink, maybe you've got a dedicated drawer that slides out, and all of these doors and drawers and lids are trying to do something conceal and hide all the waste we produce. Now, most of the trash in the can is nothing to be ashamed of. It's a natural pro process of life, like tissues and vacuum dirt and expired meat. But sometimes, maybe, you throw something away and you try to hide it under other things because you don't want anyone to know that you bought that thing on Amazon or you promised your spouse that you were done, you weren't gonna drink any more Cokes or Pop or soda or cold drinks, and you broke a commitment, so you try to hide the evidence. So you could say there are different types of trash, some that occur at no fault or decision of your own, you know, and the other trash that represents a bad decision that hurt a relationship. So keep that idea in mind, two different kinds of trash. The other thought is to, to, to talk about trash is our system of getting rid of it on a regular basis. Maybe a trash truck comes once a week and you put it out on the curb and it's taken away. Or once a week it fills up your bin and you take it to the dumpster or you drive it to the dump. 
Like you have a regular schedule and practice of getting rid of your trash. So keep that in mind. Now what if you didn't have a way to get rid of your trash? Like your trash can fills up and then it just starts spilling out into the pantry, out of the pantry. Your bathroom floors are covered with like bathroom stuff. You finish off bags of chips on the couch and you know you can't throw it away so you just like throw it on the floor. When the junk mail comes, it's just piling up on the dining room table. How long could you live like that? an hour, <laughs> a day, a week, a month. Like think about the smell that's gonna be created by that raw chicken just left out on the counter. Could you sleep at night? Could you enjoy life? Who is gonna wanna come over to your house? Now we understand the idea that we need to get rid of the waste we produce. That's what Leviticus offers to the Israelite people a way to get rid of the trash in their lives. But not the trash of paper scraps and candy bar wrappers, the trash of sin. We define sin like in many ways, but it's really anything that separates you from God or others. So how does God deal with sin? How does he take out the trash? He gives the Israelite people a system and a schedule to deal with the waste they create and the trash that occurs that's not even their own fault. So if you can understand that concept of trash being dealt with, then you understand a large part of the nature of the sacrificial system because that's exactly what God was trying to have them do with sacrificing all these animals. Sin is kind of our trash. It separates us from God. So essentially, symbolically, God was saying to the Israelites, a way to deal with sin is through the blood of a lamb or an animal. So you took an innocent lamb and then symbolically the priest would lay his hands on the lamb or the bull as if to transfer our trash or the trash of the people of Israel to the lamb. And the sin that separates us, you know, the ultimate separation is death. So then the priest would take a knife and slit the bull or the lamb's throat and the lamb would then bleed out and die. And ultimate separation. So we should be separate from God because of our sin, but then our sin is symbolically transferred to this lamb, and so it takes away our sin. So now we can have fellowship with God. That's how God dealt with the sins in those days. That's his way of taking out the trash. This is the idea of atonement. Now, if you break down the word, it's at one meant. It's a way of reconciling two parties back into one. So instead of that empty Coke can sitting on the counter for eternity, constantly reminding you of your failure, failure and reminding your spouse of your broken promise, atonement finds a way of reconciling the relationship. One party offers forgiveness, one party offers continued loyalty, and then the two find a way forward. Again, this is a concept we understand. We experience this idea like in our day-to-day -day lives in different ways. But what does this have to do with all of these laws and commands and rules and how do they apply to us today? One of the frustrations is that all these rules and regulations, they're just mixed together and they seem to have no logical order at all. It's like your Olive Garden and they bring out this the endless salad bowl and everything's just mixed together. We look at Leviticus 19. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. Keep my decrees. Do not mate different kinds of animals. Do not plant your field with two kinds of seed. Do not wear clothing woven of two kinds of material. Now, whatever verse 19 means, and I'd say pretty much all of us are disobeying verse 19 right now. Like, what in the world does it have to do with verse 18? Like, we love that law. Love your neighbor as yourself. We should be doing that but we don't do verse 19. Like it's an olive garden salad. I, I don't like onions on my salad. So I always have to pick them off. Like black olives, 
yes, give me a bowl of black olives. But onions, no. So I would eat the black olives and I would toss the onions. Like, is that what we're supposed to do when we read the Bible? Just kind of pick and choose? I mean, that's the frustration we deal with. Now, I grew up hearing all these well-dressed, clean-shaven preachers say, don't get a tattoo because the Bible says in Leviticus 19.28, do not cut your bodies for the dead or put a tattoo mark on yourself. I am Yahweh. But then somebody looks at the clean-shaven preacher and then looks at verse 27 and says, yeah, but are you shaving your beard? Like, are you trimming your beard? Which, which do you obey? Do we just pick and choose? Now, when we're dealing with frustrations like that, as we read through this book, sometimes a way around the problem is to ask a general question that might help us get to the solution side. So here's one question. Is there any kind of overriding principle that would apply to all of these rules? Like in a restaurant, even though you might get different kinds of salad, there's this overriding principle to whatever salad you get. And that is that the person who owns the restaurant is trying to serve you something that's healthy, that's good for you, it's on a clean plate, you pay for it, like that's the overriding principle to the salad menu. So is there an overriding principle to all these different kinds of commands? And the answer would be absolutely, yes. God wanted his people to behave differently because he wanted them to be different from where they came from and from where they were going. So we read this in chapter 18. Yahweh said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am Yahweh your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt, where you used to live, and you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you. Do not follow their practices. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am Yahweh your God. Keep my decrees and laws, for the person who obeys them will live by them. God says, I don't want you to be like the Egyptians, and I don't want you to be like all these people who live in Canaan. I want you to be different. Another way of saying that, and it's repeated throughout Leviticus, is that God wants his people to be holy. Look at chapter 19, verse 1. Yahweh said to Moses, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy because I, Yahweh your God, am holy. This verse and idea is repeated over and over again in Leviticus and throughout the rest of the Torah. He wants his people, the Israelites, to be holy. But what does that mean to be holy? So I want to give us a picture of that. These are uh, honey crisp apples. They all look pretty much the same, but I am going to make one of them holy. Are you ready? Okay, here we go. So do you see the difference? Or if I put all these apples on a plate and I pass them around, people would choose these apples, right? Because they don't look like this. When I took a bite out of this, I sanctified it. I separated it. I made it different from all these others. Most people, unless you're a bit crazy, would not eat this apple. Like I set it apart. I made it holy. Holiness simply means that you're set apart from something. Like we all have rooms in our houses that are holy. They're set apart for certain reasons. You cook food in the kitchen and you use the bathroom in the bathroom. They are set apart and for good reason. 
You can also make a room holy. Like when you have guests over, when we have guests over, uh, someday that'll be true again, but when we have had guests over, Jenna makes our house holy in different ways. We gather our shoes and our jackets to where they belong. The kids organize their toys so people won't trip over anything. She sanctifies the guest bathroom by cleaning it and putting out fresh towels for people. And then from that point on, I am no longer allowed to use that bathroom. Why? Because it has been set apart. It has been made holy. I can go use the upstairs bathroom. That's my bathroom. This bathroom is now for guests. Like we all have holy rooms. We all have holy furniture. We all have holy silverware. We have things that are set apart. And God wanted his people to be different, to be set apart. You look at all these people in the world. And these people are set apart. Like you are an Israelite. You are different. It's this overriding principle. Now in the old covenant, in order to have holiness happen, he gave them all these laws. And these laws can basically kind of be divided into two separate laws. One for ritual purity laws and one for moral purity laws. And I'll, I'll put some slides up that you may need to go back and look and pause to read everything, but there's a separation that we're trying to make here between laws, ritual purity and moral purity. So how do you become ritually impure? Well, those are the things about skin diseases, corpses, like if you touch a dead animal or human, genital discharge, Leviticus 15, childbirth. People often misunderstand these and they have this feeling that impurity equals sin or evil. But that is not true. Like if you are impure in the Levitical system, it doesn't mean that you're sinning or that you're evil. Like it doesn't mean that. Impurity is unavoidable. Monthly cycle for women, sex, childbirth, burying dead family members. These activities are not discouraged in the Bible nor prohibited. The goal is not to avoid becoming impure, but to avoid coming into contact with sacred or holy places, people, and things while in the state of impurity. Jonathan Clawins says it this way. The ritual purity system concerns itself with the status of an individual in relation to sacred places, people, and things. It does not concern an individual's moral status within the community. So ritual impurity and moral impurity are not the same thing. Clawins highlights the, the polarity of life and death. Life comes from the divine breath in Genesis 2. Therefore, life is imparted with an aspect of divine holiness and purity. And death is seen as a violation and reversal of the Creator's intention. Death equals defiling. So loss of body fluids, especially fluids associated with loss of life, vitality, and therefore with forces that bring death. Death is a defiling agent and stands against God's essential essence as the one who gives life. Clawins is a Jewish scholar who thinks this is a way to explain these things. All of these ritual impurities have something to do with death in one way, shape, or another. There's this separation. But it's not that you're sinful. Like you take a bath, you make an offering, you wait a while, and then you're pure again. It's not the same as moral impurity. Those are a different set of laws. Moral impurity is defiling in a moral and not a ritual sense. Causes are sexual immorality, idolatry, bloodshed. The results are defilement of the sinner, defilement of the land, defilement of the sanctuary, and expulsion from the land. There are five key differences between moral and ritual impurity. Moral impurity is the consequence of a grave sin. Ritual impurity is not. Moral impurity is a punishable offense. Ritual impurity is not. Ritual impurity is a contagious defilement. Moral impurity is not. A murderer cannot convey his defilement, nor does one need to bathe after contact with an idolater. 
Ritual impurity is temporary. Moral impurity results in a long-lasting, possibly permanent defilement of the person, the land, or the sanctuary. Ritual impurity can be solved by ritual purification. Moral impurity cannot. Moral purity is achieved by punishment or atonement or refraining from the act itself. Now that's a lot of info on moral and ritual impurity, but how does this help us with this problem that we have about whether we should pick and choose as we read these commands? Well, we see kind of a distinction in the text between these ritual things and these moral things. And then when we read in the New Testament, we look at the words of Jesus or the apostles and we see this distinction also continues. In fact, when we read the words of Jesus, we see that he like picked the onions right out of the salad and he says, oh, these are different from these other things. He does this in the book of Matthew. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together and one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now we read where that second one is and you saw it in context. Like it didn't look any different from any of the others. It didn't stand out at all. You just read right over it. But when Jesus was talking to his people at his time, like he Black Olive picks it right out and says, oh, these together with Deuteronomy 6, this is the greatest commandment. And he picks it out and he says, it's more important. Jesus also talks about dietary laws. He picks them out and changes things by stating what exactly causes defilement in Mark chapter 7. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about the parable. Are, are you so dull? He asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of their body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Now, he just mentioned all kinds of things about moral purity. Now, how can we make sense of all these things? First of all, as we read through the old covenant laws, we need to apply wisdom and understanding as we read them if we want to make application to ourselves today. Now, many people read the ancient laws and they say, these apply directly to us today. The only answer to that view is like, good luck with that. Like we're all disobeying some kind of defilement law today. We disobeyed probably 20 of them before we even got out of bed today. Uh, I read this great book back in college called the Year of Living Biblically, where this guy documents trying his best to live according to all the laws in the Torah. It's pretty hilarious watching him try to like fulfill all these different laws and fail. It's impossible to keep all these laws as direct commands on our lives. Instead, think of it like this. The ancient laws teach us something about God's wisdom, justice, and character. And then we ask, is that then repeated in the New Testament? And how does that apply to us? So you look in the Old Testament. It's these laws about like when you harvest your crop, don't harvest the corners of your field. You leave those for the poor. Does that apply directly to me? No. 
I'm not a farmer. I don't have a field. I don't do that sort of stuff. But it does tell me something about God's character. God cares for the poor. Do we see that in the New Testament? Absolutely. Like all kinds of commands in the New Testament from Jesus and the apostles are remind us God cares for the poor. Take care of the poor. So it applies to us in terms of that principle. So hopefully that makes sense. So the overriding thing is that God wants us, like he wanted the Israelites, to be different, to be holy, to be set apart. So that when people see our behavior, they react and say, oh, that's different. Like that's what we should be. And we see in the New Testament all kinds of rules and commands about being holy and being different. So we've read this this uh, past few weeks, but let's hear it again. First Peter 2. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. We're called to be different. We're called to be holy. Why? Because Yahweh is holy. Holiness should be a mark in our character. When people look at our lives Do they see us living differently? The way we handle sex and power and money and resources. Holiness does not make us Christ followers. Holiness identifies us as Christ followers. But the way to holiness, the act of atonement, ultimately is fulfilled by Jesus. For years, the Israelites sacrificed animals as the symbol of God's forgiveness and atonement. But it was only symbolic because the the sacrifice of the animal, the blood of the bull or the goat or the bird or anything else, it doesn't actually take away sins, but it does symbolically. It's kind of like the fact that our paper currency is a symbol for real value. Now, this illustration worked really well before 1933 when we were on the gold standard, but the concept remains. So we place our faith in our paper currency, but in reality, it's not worth anything. It stands for real value someplace else. So if you took one of our bills and you look at the very top of the bill of any of our paper currency, you're going to see that it's a note written from the Federal Reserve. And it essentially says like, it's a note from the government. This is not worth anything. But for our purposes of this illustration, like there is real value someplace else. About 150 miles uh, north of us, there's this place called Fort Knox that holds more than half of the United States gold, about $190 billion worth of gold. That's where the real value is. Now, you don't have to know that at all. Like you can still get a dollar's worth of value from this piece of paper. You can still place your faith in this paper bill and you'll get $1 worth of value. You may not know that there's real value someplace else. But as far as far as our government is concerned, like the value is not in the piece of paper. It lies somewhere else. The same thing is true for the sacrifices. The blood of a lamb does not deal with the sin. From God's perspective, it does symbolically. But they can place their faith in that and receive value for it. That is, they could get forgiveness from God. But from God's perspective, there was real value someplace else that was yet to come. It was the future to those people. They didn't know about it. But John the Baptist... When he saw Jesus, he saw the real value in Jesus. He said, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The writer of Hebrews makes this very clear. He says, 
It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. Jesus was the lamb, the offering. When he died, like that's the gold in Fort Knox. That's the real value. When Jesus died on a cross, he dealt with the sins of all mankind. Not just people who lived in his day, not just people featured him, but people who were in the past. Any sin, anything that had ever been committed, Christ died for that sin. The writer of Hebrews goes on to say this, For by one sacrifice he made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Now, you may have noticed at New Garden Church, we don't sacrifice bulls or lambs or birds or things. Like, we don't do that. Why? Because Christ has already come. What was future to the Israelites, and they couldn't see it, 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 He's already come in our time. And now we can look back. And when we want to have fellowship with God, when we want to deal with God in any way, we are absolutely dependent upon what Christ has done for us. He is the one that gives us access to a holy God. And we remember that in a symbolic way every week together by celebrating the Lord's Supper. It's our way of remembering this perfect and great sacrifice. It's, it's one way to remember and celebrate the atonement that we have through Christ and the call to be holy as followers of Christ. So let's remember these things, atonement and holiness, as we go to the table today. That's it for this week. Thank you for checking in with us. And we'll be back with another episode next time.